Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Anand Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm a writer with an interest in the intimate. We talk to guests to help us understand the relationship we have with our bodies when it comes to sex and intimacy. It's a whole new kind of sex education for your owl... Careful. ...pleasure. <laughs> this week of The Pleasure Podcast, we welcome the award-winning comedian, actor and writer Richard Gadd. In 2016, he won the esteemed Edinburgh Comedy Award with Monkey See, Monkey Do, a raw personal account about his sexual assault. It was a performance which pushed the boundaries of comedy and which felt monumentally cathartic for its win. In 2019, his first solo theatre show, Baby Reindeer, was the talk of Edinburgh. In it, he relives his experience of being stalked by a woman with a dangerous obsession with him, about wrestling with his sexuality and trying to come to terms with his assault. It's a shocking, thrilling show. We speak about the effects of growing up in an uber-masculine world where you thank God you're not gay and sex ed was devoid of condoms. He speaks about the sexual abuse and grooming which threw his relationship with sex out of orbit and of the erectile dysfunction that followed, which destroyed relationships and his confidence. Richard tells us how he's been able to approach sex and intimacy again, and how his deeply personal shows have been part of that healing process. He describes what drives a person to make a show about their trauma, and what the effect is when you thought it might ruin you, but in fact launched you into a whole new dazzling chapter of your career. The conversation does go to some darker places, as it does make reference to some upsetting themes. I grew up in a place called Wormit, which is sort of just over the water from Dundee. Uh, went to a state school. I think there were rougher state schools out there, but you know, there was still a sort of heavy masculinity to the place, you know. And, uh, you know, I've always been a bit of an anomaly in the sense, I, you know, I'm strong Catholic background. So that coupled with the fact it was quite a, quite a fighty, sort of scrappy, sort of homophobic school. Mm. The fact that, you know, growing up in a generation where gay didn't really mean gay anymore, it meant uncool or lame or that's gay, this is gay, or gay this, gay that. My sexuality has moved on from heterosexuality. But when I grew up, I, you know, going through adolescence, I, I definitely fancied girls and I was heterosexual and I was, I was completely comfortable in that and that, that was what I was. But I remember in the back of my mind, I wasn't a religious person, but I'd occasionally pray and I'd thank God for making me straight. So that in itself is, shows that, that, that you know, like, like from somewhere, whether it was from school, from whatever, there was like a seed of doubt, relief, whatever, that, that, that made me sort of do that. But I remember I, I reckon I, I didn't doubt my sexuality till what happened to me, which I'm sure we'll get onto later. But I remember from a very young age how relieved I would be that I was dating and having successful sex with girls. But there was like a screaming into the air, like, thank you, thank you, God. Wow, like a real fear. I mean, who were the main sort of masculine role models 
in your early life? My dad was a masculine role model in the sense that um, I do come from... My dad is, is, is a masculine guy and utterly fearless and not afraid to argue with anyone. He isn't afraid of anyone and he isn't afraid of what people think. It's quite impressive. I actually find it quite impressive a lot of the time. I'm not going against the idea of a mask. I think, you know, teaching masculinity and femininity to a kid is a good idea. I certainly remember growing up, you know, I would always get in fights. And I remember when I went to secondary school, knowing that it was a rough school, and my sister was two years above, and she, you know, she, she was, she, my sister was rough around the edges, and she certainly fell in with her, like a troubled crowd, and, you know, had, had her own upheavals. But she certainly painted to me that it's a rough place, you've you got to sort of be ready for it. And I remember thinking, well, I've got to get in a fight on day one so people leave me alone. I know that's like a sort of prison like sort of mentality. <laughs> you know, looking back at it, what an, what an utterly absurd like notion. But I remember thinking, and I went all the way through school thinking, how do I get in a fight? Starting fights, but people not, so people being like, oh, the day one, who is this intense guy? You know, and like sort of, you know, and then getting all the way through the, oh, I haven't had a fight yet, I haven't had a fight yet. And then on the bus back home, because it was only a 20 minute, maybe even half an hour bus to, to school from where I lived getting in a fight on the bus and finally sort of getting in a fight on the bus and just being like well thank god I managed to get it you know people did leave me alone but I think even if you not so much even the environment I mean even if you look at fables growing up even fairy tales that the, the prince rescues the princess you know it all seeps into your subconscious you know it's not from both genders you know women are supposed to be feminine and a product of male gaze and desires and men are supposed to be tough and the saviors and the providers and I don't think any of it's particularly helpful, but I think, you know, it's everywhere growing up. Even sex ed- education in schools, primary schools, there, there certainly wasn't any gay teachings when I was younger, you know. It was what was all... your experience of sex ed at school? I, I remember, like, state school education, we didn't even have the condoms to put on the fake penises. I mean, it was just... So you disastrous. just had, had, like, a sort of... A, just a, a bunch a, of... A sea of, of erect penises. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was one, and if I remember, Tom Cliff put it on. <laughs> and, you know, uh, I, 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 do, I do remember it, it was a joke looking... I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, it was... I hope it's a lot better now. I'm, I'm skeptical because I, I, I know that there's been all those protests in Birmingham about not wanting kids to learn sort of homosexual sex education, if that makes sense. But uh, yeah, it was a joke. And I reckon, it, you know, all that, all that systemic sort of heteronormative thinking has is, is, is done phenomenal damage probably to people growing up. You know, like, like if you're sitting in a classroom, and I wasn't at the stage because I know people say, well, it's latent. You surely look back on a time in your life where you looked over the change rooms and saw some guy's ass, thought, oh, fancy a bit of that. Nope, nope, not going to go there. I mean, I can. I mean, there was various instances in my life, you know, and I, I would say, but I, I don't remember that latent thing. So when I was younger, I, I was straight. But imagine if there was a kid that, uh, you know, is already feeling awkward and already having these confusing feelings, and then they're teaching them sex, and nothing comes in about the stuff they're feeling. And then they, like, no lesbian education, no... No gay education. Welcome to my early life. <laughs> well, exactly. Then you're going to leave that classroom thinking, need to be straight. Mm. Need to figure out how to put my penis in a vagina. And it's just adding to the repression. You know, the, the, a lot of the problem, I think, coming back to the point of heteronormativity and masculinity is, is actually a systemic problem more than anything. You said you were um, having quite successful romantic relationships. Well, yeah, yeah. sex anyway, with, mm-hmm. with women mm-hmm. from a young age. Well, 
as you were growing up. Yeah. When you say successful, what does that mean? Well, Barry White was playing in the background. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, successful, uh, it's it's kind of weird. It makes it sound like like a sort of essay. It makes it sound like, you know, like some Uh, sort of exam. Yeah. Sexual activity. I just, I was a horny teenager and I was successfully horny and we, we, we were a vibrant school. Like, I remember like, you know, I lost my virginity young, like young. And I remember thinking I was late. And I lost my virginity at 14. And I remember thinking that I was late to the party. Like, that's how at it we were. I mean, there were kids having sex with each other when they were, like, 12, like, 13. I remember, like, feeling a pressure to lose my virginity. Like, a pressure. And I lost it, I think, a few weeks before I turned 15, I remember. And thinking, like, even though virginity's 16, I had to lose it before 16. But I really have to lose it soon. Because I was starting to wear the stench of virginity on me. I look at back and it's ridiculous. I look at 14-year-olds now, I'm like, they shouldn't be having sex. Children. Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. But, um... You know, it was a school where sex was at the forefront of the conversation and I had great girlfriends at school and through school I, you know, relationship hopped and it was fine. I never had any insecurities around sex. If anything, it was something I massively looked forward to at the time and now I've got a lot more hang-ups than I do back then. What hang-ups do you think you've got now? I think I find intimacy quite hard now. Um, I, you know, every podcast in the back of my mind, there's this like, are we just waiting to drop the clangor of sexual abuse? Like, do you, do you see what I mean? So maybe if I just say that, that that happened to me, you know, and it didn't happen to me when I was like young, it happened in sort of like, like, I was still young, like the grooming period happened over a period of time. But, you know, that threw my relationship to sex out of whack. A lot of shame, a lot of shame that I was older and how could I be so naive? A lot of shame, the fact that I was, you know, I had a lot of Catholic guilt, like, I was such a like a, a, a heterosexual and I had loads of sex and was this like some kind of punishment like you know there was lots of thoughts going through my head I'm not a man anymore you know all this kind of stuff and I carried that around for years and it almost killed me like and I, I was close to, to, to that you know and so my relationship to sex shifted almost overnight because I remember my girlfriend at the time Josephine who, who never really knew anything I was going through it must have been a nightmare for her because one night I it's like you know, getting groomed, and especially when you're entering the industry, and and then something like that happens, sudden shock. It's like your your whole retrospective. Oh, if that's so, it seems so obvious now, yeah. like the whole process. <laughs> that's the challenging thing about grooming, though, isn't it? It's so insidious. Yeah, it's it is sort insidious, of just yeah. a sort of a creeping slowness about it, and it sort of covers everything that's going on. Yes. And you are sold the story, and sometimes quite happy to believe that story. It's really nice to hear that you're fabulous or beautiful yeah. or talented or you know all of these things. And that when drugs are on tap and all this kind of stuff. And, and I can imagine that that's a real environment where you would be sort of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and a bit, you know, gosh, I'm being drawn into this exciting world. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think that's some of the, the beauty of youth, actually. The mm. fact that you can be innocent and wide-eyed and have joy in this and go, oh, isn't this brilliant? Yeah. Look, look at this experience that I'm having. Look, I've got someone who's looking after me or, or looking out for me or giving me these experiences. Lucky me. And it's only in, you know, with the retrospectoscope you kind of look back and go, Fucking hell. I was yeah. being incredibly carefully manipulated and targeted. Yes, 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 exactly. And it's, it was like my life changed in a moment. I actually felt like a feeling in my brain, almost like my synapses like shifted mm. and like a feeling in my chest, like a tightness that, that didn't really go for years and years and years. And I remember going back to my girlfriend and, and, you know, there were a lot of, the way to do it was the loads of drugs involved over a long period of time and getting used to being around someone on drugs and, you know, building up a certain sense of trust, which is then taken away from you. Mm. You know, I went back to my girlfriend at the time, Josephine, and who, who you know, like, and I, I wasn't going to say anything, like, not, not in a million years was I going to tell her what happened. But I remember that 
uh, night. I think she was annoyed at me that I'd been like away for like three days on drugs and and you know not not being in touch. So she was sort of annoyed at me, at time, you know, which is fine. Uh, but also, I, I do remember like not that night, but I think the next morning she tried to have sex with me, and I felt so awful that not because of her, but but just the idea of my body and intimacy and not wanting that and feeling like I was defiled and not wanting anywhere near me and and it that then started a sort of long period of sort of erectile dysfunction really and uh you know I don't think we were meant to be together I think she'd probably agree that but but I certainly think that that the breakup was sped up by the fact that I was sexually underperforming and not telling her why and and her thinking it was because of her and you know I hope she understands now where that, that all came from, but like, I uh, I think I, I was borderline impotent for about nine nine months following it. I, I I couldn't I could not I did not have a sexual thought in my head or energy. I literally thought it was taken away from me. Oh, stolen. And I I went from being almost empowered by my heterosexuality to being full of doubt and almost as asexual. It was a crazy shift. It really was. Mm. You mentioned in an article, I think in Refinery29, mm -hmm. about feeling really detached from your body. really Massively. And, and that it sort of kind of existed as a sidebar to you. Yeah, yeah. I took no pleasure from anything. And I would load up porn, uh, all different types within the realms of legality, obviously. <laughs> and uh, uh, nothing was doing anything for me. It's weird because when you go through traumatic event, you know, I've had a lot of therapy since then. You know, trauma is kind of weird because you're... you're your body and your brain works very hard trying to make you forget it so like when you go back through it sometimes it's like you know there's like graffiti under a wall and you're sort of wiping the wall away trying to like remember it all but it was it was a terrible period of time yeah i suddenly felt like um my sort of body wasn't mine anymore i almost didn't want it to be uh <clears throat> i was just quite a happy teenager you know i was always anxious and overthought and all that kind of stuff but i was a, i was happy teenager and and happy, then, but, happy but mildly neurotic, which is yeah, quite yeah. the state of a lot of teenagers. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but so I always felt like, you know, my anger at the world and my anger at the situations and my anger at myself it all happened like later, like when I was after all this event. And I felt like I was almost like an angry teenager in my 20s. I felt so vulnerable that I, I should remember shaving my head bald. Uh, I grew my facial hair. I look like, I, I'll show you a photo after. I, I look like a nutcase. I'd be on a bus on the upper deck. And you know when it's all busy on an upper deck and people aren't allowed to stand on an upper deck, there'd be a seat next to me and people would come up, look around the bus and then just walk back downstairs, you know, because they wouldn't want to sit next to me because I, I made myself look aggressive. I felt very vulnerable with eye contact, like people knew what had happened every time I looked into their eyes. So I, but I wouldn't want that to beat me. So I'd be on the tube almost like staring people out, being like, what the fuck do you want? Uh, I it's, went, inter it's interesting because you've got quite a strong brow. It's quite, a, you know, it's, it's a very strong, yeah, yeah. In, a good, in, a, in a man, it's a very it's a good feature. So you've got quite a strong brow. So I imagine that with very strong direct eye contact is actually very challenging to people. Yeah, it was, yeah. And like, I wanted to fight. I sort of wanted to get the, the shit kicked out of me. I never self-harmed, but I felt like I wanted to. I felt so like, like the pain in me was so deep and so overwhelming that I, I really felt the urge to, but I thought like, that's ridiculous. Like, don't, but... But I used to think when I was growing up, you know, when kids were doing it, like I didn't understand what that impulse was. Like, what's, what, what is that? Where does that come from? I, I, I remember feeling like it was only when I'd gone through that and that hate and disregard for my body and all that stuff where I actually thought, oh, I can almost see the relief that you get from something like that. Very dark. So I know you mentioned sort of in the Rich Wilson podcast, you're talking about running. 
yes, at this yes. stage. And you mentioned actually this this photograph, which I think in that podcast. Yeah. And you talk about how um, uh, you were running, I don't know, twenty kilometers or twenty miles or something. Uh, I'd run obsessively. Yeah, yeah, just so I could sleep. I still feel it even now as I'm sitting here. My knees hurt. My ankles hurt. I did myself phenomenal damage during that period of time. It was horrendous. I I, uh, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, and I have many. <laughs> May I just ask about your coping strategies that yeah, you used? Yeah. I mean, clearly, because if we, for example, have had relatively uneventful, happy-go-lucky childhoods, uh-huh. we perhaps haven't come across the situations whereby we can learn coping yeah. strategies for negative events. I'm not that I'm saying that all childhoods should have something bad happen within them to be able to learn that, but some people don't necessarily get that modelling from their parents. You know, they're not necessarily taught how, you know, psychologically how would you deal with a difficult situation. If yes. you're trying to be a masculine person and put that project that out there, often that sort of carapace is quite fragile and brittle. Yeah. So, for example, if you know one knock on it and it shatters, yes, you know, a, yes. a significant knock, I suppose. Yes, absolutely. And it shatters. And so, for you, it sounds like you know you'd had a relatively happy-go-lucky childhood, which was based in masculinity. Yeah. 100%. And you were projecting that because you went to school and you were picking a fight and you were having sex with loads of girls, and it all sounds fabulous. Yeah. And yeah. then you have this horrendous event happen to you, which which would shatter anyone's you know, ecosystem, psychological or physical. So you know, you've got this ecosystem that gets shattered and then you have to pick up the pieces. And psychologically, you know, if I may ask, you know, emotionally that must have been like a vortex, an absolute maelstrom. Whilst at the same time you're trying to forget things, you, have, you, know, you must have had you know, whooshes of adrenaline, you know, huge amounts of cortisol, all these hormones in your body that are very stress-related, yeah. powering through you. Yeah whilst you're trying to forget. Yeah. Just really intrigued about how you manage the emotions you experienced. I guess I didn't. I, I could never sleep, so I'd run until I, you know, could sleep, really. And I still then I wouldn't really sleep. I would ridicule myself for being this cliche of depression. You know, like, I would hate them. Oh, the mornings are the hardest, but the mornings were the hardest. And I would make sure I got up before the sun was in the air because I didn't want to be awake in the sort of cold light of day. I wanted to, the calm of the night to bring me into the day. So I was running all night, you know, uh, miles and miles, really until I felt like I couldn't ha- handle it anymore. Sometimes I could time it so I'd make it back to the house just for that period. At other times I'd just run and run, have my oyster in my pocket, jump on the tube, I'll go all the way back. But I did not have any coping strategies. And also I, I had this attitude of, I, I knew I needed to slow down. I knew I needed to maybe go back home have a bit of parental love or whatever. I knew I needed to stop, but I didn't want it, it to win what had happened. I didn't want it to defeat me and ruin my lust for life, which, you know, I came to London for a reason because I love doing what I do and I didn't want it to beat that. So I had this thing where, like, I'm not letting it win. And I think that was perhaps the biggest problem at all. I, I persevered and persevered and I, I got through it. But, you know, I... I wasn't easy on myself for one second. I carried on trying to make it during this whole period of time, which was probably quite quite unhealthy in itself. So I didn't have any coping strategies. My running was my coping strategy, but it became addictive and problematic. And like I say, my knees and my ankles are, are, are in a state, you know, uh, these days. And and I, I'm 30 and, you know, people's bodies start to get a bit tired when about 35 is usually when your body starts to go down the other way. You, you're a doctor, you probably know that. Is that well, right? Well, I'm 43, so I'm now considering which parts of <laughs> okay, the game. I've got a year to go before I'm done. <laughs> like, let's say the, the footballer's prime is 27, really. And then, but then they start to, 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 to sort of slow down from 30 sort of onwards. Then 35 is sort of retirement. 
I feel like my knees have been like agony since I was like 26, like, like prime, so, so that's how much sort of damage I've done to them. I was wondering, you, you said after nine, it took you about nine months of feeling very disassociated from your body. Uh -huh. I'm wondering how you began to come alive again, physically. <sighs> I mean, with difficulty, with people you trust, you know, I, I had a lot of small, very intense, short relationships with people during that time and who were understanding of it and, 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 and you know, and, and it was, it almost felt like losing my virginity again. But, but, but rather than that sort of like adolescent excitement, it was like nervousness of, of myself and getting it wrong. And, you know, it, it was, it was slowly but surely I ran away from sex for a very long time. So yeah, it was, it was, <laughs> it took a while. Yeah, it Did took a while. Did you think about, I mean, obviously my, my special interest is sexual dysfunction, so I've probably got quite a skewed view of the world. But did you think at any time, perhaps I need to go and see my doctor, or I need to see a sexual therapist or something like that? Yeah, I, uh, I, I've been to a lot of therapy. You know, I've done uh, a lot of therapy. And I did go to uh, my doctor. When I first went to the doctor, I do remember look, saying, look, I'm really struggling right now, breaking down, crying. This is quite shortly after the incident itself. And I, I do remember she sort of rattled off a list of questions and first was like have you done psychedelic drugs recently and I remember being like uh yeah and one of them was like have you been like inappropriately touched or abused or sexually abused recently and I remember like it was like the first like two questions like yeah <laughs> they really hit me in the gut with how accurate they sort of were and you know I I waited nine months maybe for NHS and then I was sent to CBT because you know I wasn't being honest with anyone so they felt I was just suffering from anxiety and CBT sort of like let's draw a line under the past and learn how to cope in the present and I didn't feel like I could just draw a line under the past really and I think on about session eight or nine of the ten sessions I got I, I said look I'm going to tell you something now and then I was passed around from department to department and moved to other sort of charities outside and I've done a lot of therapy. I, th I think therapy can be good, you know. I, I think, you know, my advice to anyone who's thinking of going is sometimes you can, like, almost lie to yourself and the therapist in therapy because you almost want to feel a sense of momentum like things are getting better because you've gone. My advice is that I've wasted hours of therapy just trying to convince myself that I was making progress. I've learned now that the, the trick, because it is all confidential anyway, is to just stay being honest, you know, and... I think once I finally was honest in a room, it sort of got a bit better. It's particularly hard because you're building a relationship with that therapist, aren't you? And if you have a desire to not be judged or a desire to be liked or whatever it is, then you can actually try and play this game where you want them to like you and therefore you don't want to say things that they might judge. I remember putting up a tweet saying, I need to get a therapist to explain why I keep lying to my current therapist. <laughs> I wonder now what intimacy can, what does or could look like for you and I don't suppose I, I don't mean just sex I, I guess I mean yeah in, intimacy really yeah it's tricky I don't know at this point I, I I've got a lot better uh, I've got a partner who's amazing and understands and is patient and but I, mm. I I'm intimate with loads of people emotionally you know and like friends and family and you know like I mean I have intimacy in my life in in that respect but you know sexual intimacy you know it does it, it can take a I'm getting there but but I 
there's still work to do. <laughs> moving forward, moving on, is a really difficult thing to judge. Mm. You know, you were saying that, you know, where are you with intimacy and trust? Well, I don't know. And absolutely, that seems absolutely fine. You know, how could you know 100% now? Yes. And yeah. even in 20 years, you might not necessarily be 100% with, with the answer for that, but one hopes with time and healing, etc., that would get um, sort of better. Yes, yeah. Not a less facile word. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and it has, you know, it has, it has. I'm, you know, I'm almost there. It's, uh, you know, I think we're going through a big cultural conversation now about sex and sexuality and fluidity and all these kinds of things. And, and we're stop, stopping to think about things as being so binary and everything's becoming a bit looser and a bit more, you know. But sometimes I, I can sometimes feel that breeds a little bit more confusion <laughs> because it's almost... It does. It's great in saying that you know it's all right to be confused, but at the same time, just, there's so much options and so many different things and so many different ways we're viewing sex now. And there's even a you might know the answer. Well, what's it called when you're now that people think that people are sometimes just attracted to the person and not the the, the, the gender? What's that called again? To their brain. Remember we talked about oh, it. Oh God. Do you know what I mean? Sapiosexual. Yeah. It's some, yeah. Well, attracted that must to be intelligence. A, yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying that's what I am, but you know, there's so many like scientists and so many experts and all that everything's shifting and we're all thinking about things in different ways but but i feel like i'm standing in the middle of a whirlpool of a conversation being like where does it start and where does it end yeah. ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Do you feel you're carrying that period of your life around with you? In your body all the time? Uh, I think it gets easier and easier day by day and I think like you know I, I've, I've worked so hard to sort of make it a part of my life in a positive way. I work for a sexual abuse charity now. I've obviously done shows about it and spoken about it at length. Um, so I was just really interested on that point doing the shows because you are doing you are run if I can say running on a treadmill. Yes this is monkey see monkey, monkey do. Say, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Monkey see monkey see. You're running on a treadmill reliving your abusive experience mm -hmm. about being a runner who's trying to run away from their abusive experience. Yes, yes, exactly, yeah. That's exactly what it was, yeah. And it sounds utterly exhausting. Yeah, it was, and that, that was a whole other thing. I just remember, like, when I was running and running and in this period of hell, and, and I just remember just this odd, like, light bulb in the distance, like a blinking sort of star. It was just like, maybe do a show? No, that's ridiculous, that's ridiculous. That every time that like, star would come slightly bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think it got to a point where, like, I was exhausted and, of doing these, these comedy shows that, was, that sort of removed from what I was actually going through. And it was becoming harder and harder to, to put on this facade. 
So I thought either I, I quit and take some TLC and, you know, go back home and take a rest, or I find a way of fusing my work and my ambition with what happened to me, because I felt like it was one or the other. The irony was I thought it would ruin me, that show. I thought it was going to be uh, derided and absurd. And I mean, I, I always felt like we have like a monkey, that monkey brain, that sort of idea is, is where the show sort of came from. And I felt like, you know, it's the idea that we are monkeys and we still react through fear-based sort of primal instincts about things, but we've become sort of human beings and very intellectualized. So we, we're constantly jarring between our like primal instincts and our ability to intellectualize. And I really felt like during that whole period of time, I'd lost myself to like my base primal instincts. <laughs> and like I was just full of anger and hate and upset. And there was never any sort of respite. It was just that. Uh, and that's what the show was. I was on a treadmill running away from the monkey on the projector screen and voices in my head and training for the man's man's competition I mean it was absurd and then I played my therapy records you know and I had chins like miming along to them with little hats on and you know the whole thing was mental and I was like this is going to be a long month and I remember thinking as I got to Edinburgh I did a preview in London that was a disaster and I went to Edinburgh and I remember thinking I just got to get through this like you know I just got to get to the end can I just you ask know. why I just don't get the idea of putting yourself through, but you know, you've had a disastrous experience, you've then had a disastrous first show, and then yeah. you know, I, I don't know if I would have the psychological chutzpah to kind of go, I'm still going to keep going. Yeah, I, I had no choice, really. I had no choice. Um, this really was my last option to try and make a go of it still whilst living with this. It was my last option. And if it had failed, I don't know what I would have done. I had told myself I'd do it and, and I, I didn't want to stop and no matter what. And then and then for, for me to go from, like, we went to Edinburgh and we, we teched the show and, you know, I'd employed, like, a group of us on the show. And I remember we did this really sort of disgruntled tech where everything was going wrong and people were argumentative and it was just awful. And I remember we all sat down and we had a conversation where, you know, we all expressed very honestly that, that we were very worried about what was to come. And... I was cracking up and I remember someone in the team saying, look, you know, you just got to hope you'll get a few fours, you know, threes are fine. You know, I doubt this is going to get twos and ones, but like threes and fours, that's good. Like, you know, this is never going to win the comedy awards. I remember somebody said, and then it fucking won the comedy award about four, <laughs> four weeks later. I mean, I, it, it was the most astonishing. We sat in that tech and, and uh, I thought like the, the, it could be the biggest chance of sort of mass suicide. There's seven people in a room thinking it's not worth it. Let's just end it now. And at least we'll have an Edinburgh story of some kind to, for that, to, for how the month panned out. I, I mean, I, couldn't, I sort of couldn't believe it. Had a lot of your friends or family, was this the first time that they'd heard your story? Um, my mum obviously knew, but I had to phone my dad before Edinburgh and sort of tell him. Very, yeah, very. May I ask how he took that? He took it very well. I was very impressed. And... and I always worried about what he'd think, and uh, he was brilliant about it. And he and he has sort of been brilliant about it. And I think there's part of him that doesn't want to know, like the details, but but knows that it's happened. And then it was sort of cards on the table. You know, I, I play in a football team. I, the irony of all of this stuff, and and you know, being a very emotional guy, and I, I know like we shouldn't think in terms of like structures, but but you know, I do, I do, I am obsessed, like still with masculine forms like MMA and and football. I, I, those are my two biggest passions in life, from a sort of hobby watching point of view. Yeah. And I played on a football team in London, and I was—they were a big reason, a big making me doubt because you know, 
Sunday football is still not so much anymore, but still to this day a little bit homophobic, a little bit you know, a little bit uh, rough around the edges. I was really worried what they'd think. I mean, no Premiership footballers come out as gay. Have well, they? exactly, exactly. And uh, I really worried what they'd think. And I remember the captain came along in in uh, in uh, Edinburgh. And I remember he came along, and I remember thinking, do I do I try and find a way of him not getting in? Like, and I remember just thinking, do I do I lock the doors and do I stop him coming or do I say, because it was because it was by that point it was like packed out, and you get texts of mates being like, can you squeeze me in the back door? And I do it, and I thought, well, how can I say to him, come at a time when he won't get in, you know? And then I thought, oh, you know, like, what's the point in hiding anymore? And I remember I, taking him along to the show, and he texted me afterwards, being like, tonight made me, I'm gonna get emotional. He was like, tonight made me proud to be your mate. And I just remember uh, uh, being like, why was I so, why was I so worried, you know? Yeah. Uh, in fact, the football team had been like amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and I always just remember, you know, sometimes I was like, what was I also scared about? But hey ho. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was a crazy month. I'll never forget it. It was the best, best period of my life. And you know, sometimes you have to go through the furnace to sort of come out the other side, you know. And then, well, I suppose it was just before this period, before you put the show up, yeah. that you met who would then become your stalker. Yes. Basically, I, I worked in a bar for a, a long period of time when I first moved to London and a customer came in, you know, that I showed a bit of kindness to and she became so slowly infatuated with me. And I, I knew she was sort of, she started coming to the pub more and more. I knew it was for me. I knew that she was coming in to see me. Uh, but because it was a pub in a public place, I could deal with it. It started to become really intense. It started to like get worse and worse. She started to sort of talk to me, at me all shift and would interfere with the customers I was serving. And you know, at the start, I, I, I was wrong because like I knew she was unwell and I knew she, that she was building up an infatuation. And I did sort of egg it on a bit. That was the culture of the pub. I, I'm very ashamed of that. Again, trapped in that masculine environment and, and, and actually giving in to these sort of reckless impulses, which are immoral. and. I speak about that in the play. I, I did a lot to make the situation worse. And in fact, the tagline we've always used is, where did my morality stop and hers begin? And something like that. Yeah, <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And uh, it was at the pub and it was I could cope with it. But then it started to spill out into my life. You know, I was doing gigs and shows and she was turning up and following me home. And it got to the point where she obtained my email address and, and, and it really, over a number of years, ballooned into an impossible situation. I had to move house, I quit the job, and it was amazing the skill, in a way, of her ability to, to always find me and, and get in amongst it. She was pestering comedians I was tagged in tweet with, she was pestering my family. It got to a point where it was impossible, and it was funny enough when I won the comedy award, and I started to say, look, I'm not straight anymore, I'm what I am is sexually confused. I have had experiences with men and women. I don't know where I am. That was sort of what the show was saying. She had me, because I'd been behaving in such a masculine way, and I think because I do have a deep voice and I perhaps give off a masculine vibe, she really did email me like I was some sort of like epitome of sort of masculinity. And me doing the show and coming clean about all this stuff drove her insane because it was like I'd been leading her on for such a long period of time. And she really flipped her lid and her love for me and her passion and her obsession with following me around turned into furious anger and harassment and threats and violence and all kinds of things and then um, around about this time she got my number so I just won the Edinburgh Comedy Award I went on holiday and I sent an out of office reply and even though I blocked her email address for some reason it rebounded to her almost like the out of office doesn't take notice of the blocking of the email address so it sent my number back to her 
And I got back having won the Perry Award. I switched my phone off for a full like 10 days while I was away because I'd never done that. I'd never treated myself to something like that. And I turned it on and I had like 50 voicemails and I thought, oh, this will be friends and family and this will be people saying congratulations and this is going to be great. And I remember like having a shower, having cooking like a meal or whatever and sitting down and getting ready to listen to them all. Like who's, who's left me a congratulations message? Welcome to your voicemail. And then I hear her voice and I'm like, she's got my number and she's filled it up and she never hung up. She'd fill up, you know, you get about 20 minutes per voicemail and she'd fill it right up. And you'd and then listen the next to all one, of it? Yeah, and it would cut her off. And then she'd phone back and she'd fill it up. She filled up my entire inbox in the space of two days. And I calculated that it's like 50 messages at 20 minutes in two days. And so she was on the phone to me for the majority of two days was basically mm-hmm. what it was. And that was when it got really bad because she was hitting me on all angles. And I didn't, again, that stubborn thing, I wasn't going to let the sexual abuse win. I wasn't going to let her win. I wasn't going to change my number. I wasn't going to change my email address. I wasn't going to alter my behavior. She needed to alter her behavior around me as the criminal, as the person who's committing the crime. But it took ages to get the situation dealt with. It took ages. And even when it was dealt with, there were still bits of it that were ongoing. Um, I, I can't say much, but even, even though I did go down a legal route and the, the police did take the sweet ass time dealing with the situation, when I did get it legally dealt with, she still w- was pestering the pub. She was still pestering other people. She still made it known to theatres I was playing in. She still sent letters and, you know, and it, it did go on for, for a very long time. And I, and it was such an awful experience and one that I felt I had such little help to deal with mm. from a legal point of view or a social point of view that I, I thought, well, I should probably do a show about this now, <laughs> you know, and, and show people just how fucking difficult it is. It felt like there was this interesting duality going on, which you touched on in the show. It's fascinating, really, how she both simultaneously supported your masculinity, made you feel that you were the man that you'd sort of grown up wanting to be. Yeah. And yet, at the same time, being stalked by this woman, not being taken necessarily that seriously immediately by the police. Yeah, yeah. And feeling very threatened by her. Yeah. And yet still being this tough guy. Yeah, yeah. Supposedly. Um, yeah. That there's this both this building up and ripping down simultaneously. Yeah, absolutely. I used to think, like, there was a reason she came into my life at the point that she did, you know, quite shortly after I was sexually abused. Like, I almost like, you know, again, I don't believe in God, but sometimes, like, you know, you wonder about the mysteries of the world and life and whether there is something more. And I just remember thinking, like, there's a reason that when my confidence is so low and my insecurity is so low that this, this woman turns up who's unadulterated, unchanneled love and compliments and thinks I'm the manliest man on the planet and sits at the bar fueling my ego. They, like, like, it was she, almost she, like... She groomed you too. It, well, yeah, in a way. But also I, I remember like just thinking like, oh God, this guy's had it tough and God's going to fax a bit of love through, but it gets jammed, you know, in the, in the fax, you know, and oh shit. And it sort of sends my way, but she's... She is like unadulterated love, but because it's been jammed in the facts. It's been warped. It's been warped and it's slightly wrong. It's obsession. Do you know what I mean? And, and it was, I always thought it was so strange, like, especially when like, I won the Edinburgh Comedy Awards. And I really felt like that was such a, a symbol of me getting my strength back. That, that literally, as I expunge the demons of one person, she just grabs the baton and starts running with it instead. You, know, you talked about it in the show. You speak as if it were a manifestation of this bad shit that has not necessarily been all exhumed or dealt with yeah I think so and transformed in another in another way and pushed on again yes yeah I think so I think there's loads of theories I have and I think I try and throw a bunch of them out I sometimes question whether she was sort of my screaming subconscious (laughs) 
Do you know what I mean? Like, like this, this, this last bastion of who I was trying to be and this last symbol of why I need to stop trying to be this person. How difficult that it makes one look inwards as opposed to yeah, yeah. feel like this is no fault of my own. This is, well, yeah. I know you, you make it very clear. In fact, you, you put quite a lot of importance on making sure the narrative is, is not one-sided and that it's not a, an inverted commas, a victim narrative in any way, as you yeah, say. Yeah, you have a yeah. very balanced viewpoint. I ju yeah, I, I mean, I never wanted it to be a... I could have easily made myself out to be perfect and been like, I offered her a cup of tea and, yeah. oh my God, she ruined my life, look at that. But, but you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't behave well. And I think, you know, in this day and age, there's a lot of pressure and, uh, you know, there's a lot of outrage. I really felt the pressure of that right in the show. And I really think I did a few drafts that were kowtowing to the outrage culture that we now live in and, and where I just painted myself as the, the perfect victim. And in every third sentence, I was sort of justifying while I was telling the story, you know. And eventually, I realized that this did happen to me. And I didn't behave perfect. And why am I bothering to sort of hide that? And it's been hugely successful. Another hugely successful show. You've just had it announced today that you're going to be going to Ambassador's Theatre this Ambassador's year. Ambassador's Theatre in the West End, yeah. And then End, New yeah. York. Yeah, um, and then New York. I was wondering what it feels like to have two shows that deal with two very tough periods of your life so lauded well i see yeah i think it helps you know like that they've been success because not only have the shows i've learned to sort of understand everything a bit more through doing the shows and through writing it and trying to understand it I, the fact that they've touched people and made especially monks you want to do that made people understand their own sexual abuse and all this kind of stuff it just makes you realise that it was the right decision and that you've come a long way and if people like it then there's a sort of validation that it was all okay that you went through all this stuff and I don't know, I, I, it means a great deal to me that they've been as well received as they have. Um, it really feels like you're putting your, literally your heart out there. Yeah, and they, you're they are big, almost, And you've been scarred but actually the scars are still fresh and they, they exist as part of you. Yeah. You're giving it all there and it, you're with the possibility you could receive yet more scars rather than healing. Yeah, exactly. It's tough. You know, Monkey Monkey Do, I, f I felt like I kept it in for so long that I was, I, was, I was nervous but ready to speak about this, like no more hiding. With Baby Reindeer, the fact that it was sort of still ongoing, the fact that, you know, I explore my sexuality in it, which is still, you know, uh, something I grapple with and, and question a lot. You know, a lot's made of the LGBT plus, you know, that the big long alphabet and a lot of, there's a lot of cynicism and sneering, which I don't agree with. Mm. But the cue, you know, the questioning, you know, that, that was probably the first time that I actually felt, oh yeah, that is something that I do like day to day. I am a questioner and that's how I currently am. But in the show, there is still that questioning element and there is still like facets of baby reindeer that I feel uncomfortable with, like my own negative behavior and the sexuality element and the times I was cruel and... Can I just ask about the sexuality bit? Yeah, yeah. Just what's the bit that gives you challenge? Is it the fact that your masculine sort of hyper image is being challenged by it? Well, or? I talk about dating a trans woman in, in uh, Baby Reindeer and I talk about my uh, discomfort about that, you know, uh, and I, I really regret that. And I, I put it out to an audience every night and saying, look, I was in a relationship with someone that I was, I was ashamed of. I was ashamed of myself and the, that part of myself, but it manifested in being ashamed of someone else. And I don't know, like, I, I really regret that and kick myself for that. I can forgive myself due to entrenched masculinity and all that stuff growing up. I can sort of forgive myself, but what I grapple with with Baby Reindeer 
is that I don't think I was quite ready to uh, face how, how guilty I feel about the whole thing. Yeah, it, it does take it out of me. I do find it, I do find it difficult, yeah. I was wondering, because you, you mentioned how doing the shows help you deal with certain periods of, uh, of, of your life and, and issues and questions. It's interesting, I suppose I'm talking from the perspective of someone who's written a very autobiographical show and I'm in the middle of writing another one at the moment. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I wonder sometimes how much during the writing of it, we're very, it, it's very, it can be very therapeutic and, or not to be too cliched about it, but it can be. And you're grappling with things and you're putting it out to the world and saying, I mean, I don't know if this is you, but it's certainly me. This is me. Do you feel this? Do you have this? Am I reaching anyone? Yeah. Uh, please stand up, call out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that you is too. what it's like. But also, after a while, I start to feel like I don't own it so much. Sometimes I start to feel like I, oh, well, that's, um, I'm handing it over to the art form now or to the yeah, audience. Yeah, which can feel good. I think I, I agree with all of that. And I, I'm, I think I did eventually learn to do that with Monkey Monkey Do. I think that's part of the healing process. You learn to distance yourself from it. And that's, that, that is art is catharsis as far as I'm concerned. And I may be waiting for that threshold to come with Baby Reindeer where, right, I've left that on stage now, I'm at peace with it. And I think it will come. It came with Monkey Monkey Do after a, a long time. Yeah. You know, that, that, that wasn't easy, you know. But by the end, I, I felt it, it was a lot easier. And I think that's true. And I think that's, that can be quite helpful, actually. You can follow Richard on social media at Mr. Richard Gad for more information on his shows and upcoming dates. Thank you for listening to The Pleasure Podcast. If you enjoy this, do share, review and subscribe on iTunes. It really does help other people find us and helps to give the series a boost. Please do give us five stars. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. Gilad Vysotsky for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex, and of course, pleasure. pleasure. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.